Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. I'm going to read it through twice because I didn't want to hear it the first time and I'm going to think that maybe none of us want to hear it the first time. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things and they derided Him. And He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Again, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided Him. And He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is the Word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. A little background on this text before we get into what we're talking about this morning. The uh, text uh, before it where He says that they heard these things, Jesus was teaching about the lost things parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the the prodigal son, and the parable of the unjust steward. And in all these things where someone changed the way they saw things or found things they were looking for, um, the Pharisees didn't do business that way. And so, this was something that they did not like. But also, when it came to the unjust steward... Jesus said nobody can serve two masters. He'll hate one and love the other. He'll be loyal to one and despise the other because you cannot serve God and mammon or God and worldly possessions. This is when the Pharisees got most upset because they were after things of the world and tried to promote their things of the world as things of God. And I'm going to say that again. They tried to promote their things of the world and their understanding of it as things of God and expected others to agree and do the same. Or they ostracize them from the temple. Just so you know. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask that Your Word would speak to us today. Your heart before us and Your mind within us. Heavenly Father, and if not, that You would help us to grow, to change, to be ministered unto today by Your Holy Spirit till those things happen in us and through us in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in our Church Up Sermon Series. We're on one that uh, continues the fundamental of right thinking. We're going to learn the mindset of what Church Up is like. Most of us may hear some things today that make you uncomfortable. If it doesn't, I'll be surprised because when God showed me these things this week, I did not want to hear it. I read the verse for today's sermon one day this week and I was looking for a different passage to preach on immediately. That's when I knew I had to mark it and come back to it. In the next few days, God did a work that was very, very heart-wrenching in me. I pray today that you allow God access into your resistance. 
It wasn't easy for me to do that. And there's a reason why, and I'll share that with you in a moment. But we are talking about church habits, the things that we see others doing for Jesus that affects them, that affects somebody else's life. It's not, hey, look at me, I'm church enough. That's not church enough. It's, wow, look what they've done for Jesus and this person's been touched by that. It's talking about seeing someone else doing something. It is a verb and the mindset behind it is very important. Now, the seven fundamentals that we've been talking about, people ask for more about them. This one is right thinking. Now, I have to tell you, there's such a thing as civil or social religion. It's what I learned about in seminary where we talk about how um, a politician will say, after he said his spiel, thank you and God bless you and God bless America. It sounds like he's being holy and religious at the end. It's just civil religion. It's respectful. It's polite. It's, not, it's meant to not offend, not to show forth faith. It's how it's ended in most addresses by our presidents throughout the years. It's expected. It's customary. May God bless you and may God bless America. That's civil religion where there is an outward appearance of godliness, but not necessarily the inward character by the person saying it. You've heard a lot of people, even folks who don't believe in God, say, bless you when someone sneezes. It is not an act of, oh, they love Jesus. No, it is not that. It is a socially acceptable thing. And that's why people do that. But we don't understand that all the time. And so we begin to see that the civil religion is what looks good for God on the outside, but on the inside, you don't have any idea or any discerning of how a person is. But, social religion has made it so we can justify how we think and act. And therefore, it seems okay. Now, here's another one. God helps those who help themselves. That's a civil religious statement. Or, have you heard this one? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. What if you can't afford boots? What if you can't help yourself? What if you're in a place where you've been stricken down and have nothing? Lost everything in a house fire? Pull yourself up. Do what you got. And uh, all of a sudden, those don't fly. And the truth is, God acts in absolutes. Amen. Listen to me. God acts in absolutes. When God says something, it isn't appropriate in one situation and inappropriate in another. It's across the board applicable to everyone's life, including yours, including mine. And so, if we have to justify how we think or how we act to ourselves or to someone else, it could be that we are doing something that is an abomination to God. The Jesus here in this verse is really serious and it's a very uncomfortable verse. Because people are justifying themselves and their behavior to other people, but not before God because it doesn't fly in the face of God's holiness and truth. Here's what I think. We see our actions based on a set of standards which give us justifiability. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. Justifiability is, well, this is what I think is right, and it seems to make sense, and so it's good. We've got a lot of this humanism in our world that says because it feels right, because I think it's right, it should be fair, 
Therefore, it's justifiable. It has a sense of this justifiability of the behavior and the thought process because it seems right. Uh, you don't think I know that we all do this, but I'm going to share with you one that's real simple. On the highway, pick one, but on most of them in the country, the speed limit is 55. You all know this, right? Yes. How many of us have justified breaking that? Besides me. I mean, besides me. Has anybody here ever gone over 55 and a 55? How about over 25 and a 25? How about around the mall where it's 15, you're going 18, 20, 25, going, this is ridiculous, you know, nobody else out here, I can go faster. Justifiability. We all do it. Well, after all, there's nobody else out. It's late, it's dark, you know, there's no cop, no stop. It's a California stop. I can roll the stop sign. Yeah. All of a sudden, we have reasons to not do what the law says. But the problem with that mindset is we also find reasons to not do what God says. For the same reasons. And this is what the Pharisees were doing. And it's what we are doing. It is what I have been doing and didn't even see it. God had to basically take a baseball bat up against the side of my head and show me, and I still was defiant this week. He gave me clues from this verse, this wonderful, horrible, challenging, convicting, treacherous verse I wish wasn't true, but is, to a concept that I learned on Tuesday to another one He was showing me on Wednesday and another one He showed me on Friday. And I'm going, "Uh, God, this is all tying in. You think you got something to show me? Do you think, God, that maybe I need to learn something here? Maybe so. Here's what happens. Rather than being holy, humble, and loving people and loving others, we sound out like we're puffed up non-Christians justifying our behavior. Well, I didn't help them because they, they were rude. I didn't give them the time of day because they acted like they were glaring and staring and being unkind. We justify our behavior on someone else's. Ooh! Don't do that, says God. But God, you understand, these people, they don't love you. And he's going, what does other people have to do with you and me? What does their behavior and attitude have to do with your responsibility of loving others as you love me? Which part of that command do you justify away? When Jesus was asked, what, are the mo- what is the most important commandment? He said the first one is to love God here he says, Hear, O hero, Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as you love yourself. Amen. Oh, we can quote that all day. Except when we don't do it. 
I ought to, but God, you know, this is a justifiable situation. They cut me off, it's justifiable to cut them off. Do unto others, they do unto you, right? <laughs> That's not what the golden rule says. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, not because they did something. We are in a very aggressive country, behavior-wise. We're not defensive. We're not looking out for the other person. We're looking out for being safe from other people rather than trying to encourage, support, and establish them. And we justify it in our minds because it's unjustifiable before God. I did say this is an uncomfortable verse, right? We haven't got that hard part yet. And we'll get there. I'm just giving you an introduction on why this is important. But Jesus gives us really clear warning about justifying. He doesn't just say it's bad, ought not do it. He says it's an abomination in God's eyes. Abomination. Is that like a snowman? No. Not the abominable snowman. That's not what it's talking about. An abomination is something that God finds no pleasure in. That He disdains with heart full of, don't do that. It is an abomination means it is almost offensive to God. Yeah. That's what he says. And yet, when I read that verse, I said, I don't want to hear that. But when you hear something like that that you don't want to hear, stick with that verse. Stay with it. When you read a verse you don't understand, don't gloss over it. Stay with it until you do. To be Christ-like, we have to have the mind of Christ. It's clear in Scriptures that that's true. He even tells us that in a verse we'll get to in a little bit. But there are three priorities Jesus held that He believed and lived out because of His relationship with His Heavenly Father. This relationship for Jesus was unwavering. He kept that relationship pure above all others. In other words, He can offend people, but He's not going to walk away from His Heavenly Father in disobedience. The main priorities that we make justifiably absent in our lives are three that Jesus makes present in His. And if we are going to be believers in Christ and follow Him, they have to be present in each one of us. Again, I'm telling you, this week I saw that they were not. I'm not happy to say that, but I'm happy to say that God showed me so I could show you and I could also work on my own. Because God isn't finished with any of us yet. We are works in progress. You're not done yet. Being saved is the beginning of the process of God cleaning you. He's caught you like a fish on a line. Now He's got to clean you. That's right. A fish on a line has to be cleaned, cut apart before it's even useful. And that's what God's trying to do. Get rid of the fishiness out of us so we can be useful for His kingdom. If you don't like fish, I'm sorry. Um, it's just a good analogy. You don't have to eat the fish. Just be the fish. But the first thing and I want to show you is in John 13, verses 3-5, through 5, that Jesus was a servant leader. That's the first mindset He had. He said, if anybody of you wants to become great, 
then he must wash or become a servant. If you want to be a master, you must serve. Not have others serve you like the kings did and the Pharisees and all those folks in the New Testament day, but that you would allow yourself to be serving, not to be served. And so in John 13, he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His Father's, into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. This is the last night in which He was alive. Laid aside His garments, took a towel, and girded Himself with the towel. This picture is of a servant. A servant takes a towel but he, because He intends to use it to help, to clean, to do something. A towel in hand says, I'm willing to serve. And after that, when He took that towel, He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. We're familiar with this passage. But at that time, when Jesus did that, He was doing a slave's job. A job that was menial at best, that was not meant for a King of kings and Lord of lords to ascribe unto Himself. When He grabbed the towel, the disciples are going, He's demeaning Himself. He was not demeaning Himself. What did Jesus lose by serving in that way? Tell me what He lost. Did He lose honor? Did He lose place, position, prosperity, prominence in the kingdom of God? Did He lose the keys to sin and death? Did He lose the ability to go to the cross by serving, by taking a slave role? Did He lose anything? And they thought He was demeaning Himself and bringing Himself into a bad position to do that. We think, as the disciples do, that it's justifiable to not do that. And if Jesus hadn't done that, it would have been okay. But a servant leader doesn't look at it that way. A servant leader is looking for opportunities to bless. Now you say, oh, I'm no leader. Hello, you have leadership and authority in some areas in your life. You have an example as a believer to lead a non-Christian to know what a Christian is supposed to be like. You are a leader. Whether you accept that or not is on you. But you are a leader. And people are going to listen, lead, and follow by your example or criticize it. It's true. But He washed the disciples' feet and when He came to Peter, Peter understood that Jesus was trying to serve Him as a slave. And Peter said, do you remember what Peter said? You ever read this passage and just took it into context? Jesus, Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus said, what I'm doing, you don't understand. You don't understand how a leader can serve. But you will know one day when you begin to follow me as a servant leader yourself. And here's what Peter says. You shall never... Wash my feet. I will never let you demean yourself like that. I will never let you be dishonored in my presence. And Jesus looked at him and said, if I don't do this, you don't even have a part with me. Mm -hmm. If you don't let God serve you, 
so that you can learn how to serve others, you have no part with Him. If you don't let yourself be served by the Holy Father through Jesus Christ and people who love Him, you won't know what it's like to be served to know how to serve another. And Jesus said, if I don't, you have no part. And then Peter says, Lord, then not just my feet. Wash all of me. Amen. Wash all of me because all of me needs all a part of you. I want all of me to be a part of you. And Jesus understands Peter doesn't get it yet. It's not about Peter being washed. It's about Jesus washing Peter. And Jesus simply says, I only need to wash your feet. That's it. To be a servant. To show you what a servant does. Because that was the servant's job, washing the feet. It wasn't to wash his whole body, which Peter didn't understand. And that's such a powerful passage. One day we may look at that and dive deeper into that. But today I just want to share with you that if you have never been served and you don't know what it's like to serve and what blessing it is to serve another. Because you're giving what you've received once you've been served. Let me tell you, you've been served by God. By Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the greatest act of service that can be done. You've been served. If you haven't yet received that sacrificial death of Christ as true and real in your life, there's a problem because you haven't been served in the highest way that you cannot serve back with. You can't pay that back. And so you wouldn't know what it's like to be served at the highest level of service by a king who is Lord, who should be worshipped by you and served by you. Instead, He's serving you. That transformation and that twist isn't always easily understood because it doesn't make sense. It's justifiably inaccurate according to human standards. So we are to be servant leaders and look for ways to serve. Mm-hmm. That's a priority. But there are two others. Then the second one is that Jesus knew the Scriptures. He knew they contained life. As a matter of fact, Paul says in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scriptures God breathed. Actually, that's verse 3.15 and 16 together. All Scriptures God breathed. And that word there, Paul made up, means it's the breath of God. The Scripture, the Bible, is the breath of God. It means it's God-breathed. No matter who wrote it, the inspiration, the source, the power is God. He knew, Jesus knew, the Bible, the Scriptures are life-giving. Oh, you say, what do you mean? Life-giving. <laughs> if it's life-giving, it means that it sustains you. It completes your process of growth, if you will, or is an essential part of it. So, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is out there in the wilderness for 40 days and comes tempted by the devil. And the devil says, if your son of man command that these stones become bread. What does Jesus say? We know this verse after we hear it. Oh yeah, I know He says that. Yeah, that's right. 
Man shall not live by bread alone. But before that he says, it is written. He wouldn't know it is written unless he was familiar and studied what was written. It is written in the Holy Scripture, man shall not live by bread alone, but what shall man live by? By the breath of God, which is Scripture. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If Scripture is life to a believer, then is it not true that we should be studying, learning, quoting, and memorizing it so we can quote it? One of the greatest blessings I learned was when I began to memorize Scripture and I would walk around doing my work and different things and I would think about those verses that I had memorized and began to think, God, what do these mean? What do they say to me? And I began to fall in love with those verses in my heart and meditate on them and think about them and consider them. But, I want to tell you something. I have not been very good at memorizing Scripture lately. I have decided there are so many verses in the Bible, I don't know which one to start with. Do you understand that's justifiability of not doing it? Pick any. Pick the first one. Pick the last one. Pick a middle one. Open your Bible and point. Start there. Pick something. Memorize Scripture. Study it. Learn it. And I realized something this week as I had teased last week I was developing a system to study, highlight, annotate the Bible. That as I began to work through it, I realized I didn't really have a plan for why I highlighted what I highlighted and underlined what I underlined. I'd go back through old Bibles that I had in different places and I'd go, "Um, there's nothing consistent here. I don't know why I highlighted this in red and why I underlined this one in black and put this arrow here and what this little note means. I have no idea. I just thought it was good at the time, but I had no idea what I was doing then. I mean, I knew at the time what I was doing, but now I don't remember. Now, that means I have to go back to those old passages and relearn what I learned and not to go deeper with what I already knew. And so, God put on my heart, I needed an annotation system. A way to understand and read and keep notes that made sense to me. So that when I went back to them, I wouldn't be going, going, what does this verse say to me? I'd already know and I could go deeper with the Word. That the next time I read it, because each time you read a verse, it has a different meaning, I could pull the new meaning out. Not the same old one. Or I could take that old meaning and see how far I've grown and gone deeper. And so I tried a bunch of different ways to do that in the last two weeks. And last week I thought I was settled on it. And then this week I realized, not even close. And during one of my devotionals this week, I said, God, I'm having trouble with this. I think I'm going to ask you how to do this. You ever been like that? You try everything else and you go, God, I don't know how to do this. Why don't you help me? Within 10 seconds, he said, what's the most important thing about our moment right now? I said, it's the relationship that we have. 
And he said, and how do you know about that relationship? I said, because your word tells me about it. And when I pray with you, I I get insights and things like that. And when I study and memorize these verses, I learn you better. And he said, but what did you say was the most important thing? I just said, Lord, I said, relationship with you. And he said, really? So that means you're studying, memorizing, and seeking all the things in my word to talk about me. And that's your priority. And I said, I think so. He said, go look at all the attempts you made to annotate and highlight the Bible, and you show me that's your priority. You show me that that's your truth. And I opened it up, and I looked. Mm-hmm. I had wrote down in one category of verses I want to memorize some neat thoughts, inspiring verses. Here's one about prayer. Here's one where I could, you know, sermon texts I preached on. Here's another one about maybe some verses that were convicting. And somewhere in the middle of all that, there was some stuff that says character of God. It was a subcategory of a subcategory. Relationship with God was somewhere, somewhere stuck, tucked, hidden. Is that true for you too? That your relationship with God is somewhere stuck, tucked, hidden, and sometimes comes out when you really need help? Or is it there forefront in everything you do? It's a question that Jesus doesn't have to wonder because the Word of God to Him is life-giving because it's God's breath. It's the relationship directly to Him from God, for God, back to God. And so I stopped everything I was doing. I had six sheets I could show you I saved them of all these attempts and creative words like spork. I thought, you know, spork, you can eat it or sip it. The Word of God... Trying to be funny and creative instead of truthful. And I scribbled it all out and I put the first word, relationship with God. And guess what? Fifteen things fit in there. Or more. Because everything flows out of that. And that's when I got a little humble. I said, God, I, I, I know this is important, but why am I not doing this? He said, because other things catch your fancy. Things that look pleasing to you and things that look pleasing for others and you're trying to do this for others and not for yourself and not for me. And I can't use what you won't give to me. It took like 10 minutes total once I started from the right place. And I settled it and I went, wow, God, that was easy. He said, no. It wasn't easy for you. It was easy when you let me do it. And isn't that how we live our lives? Making it hard because we don't put God priority number one. It was our priority one sermon series a few years ago. And guess what? I'm going to have to go back and listen to them, aren't I? But you understand if God is your priority, you're going to be spending time in His Word learning who He is. Who your identity in Christ is. And what your relationship with God is, what He says about you. Because the enemy is going to start telling you stuff that isn't true. And if you don't know what God says about you, anything will do. It's alright not to love that person, God, because they, they don't love you. But the Word doesn't say that. Here's how I started trying to twist this. And, and I hope you don't do this. When it said love one another, love the brethren, I thought it meant other Christians. 
It doesn't mean those people who aren't Christian, God. I don't have to love them because it says love the brethren. <laughs> oh, the webs we weave. Well, we're trying not to believe. When God says love one another, He did not qualify whether they were believers or non-believers. He said love one another. Yes, that's what God said. And I had to change my thinking because the relationship with God will change the way you think, the way you live, and the way you act. Because it comes out of Scripture which is life-giving and it strips off, as the Word of God does, the junk separates between joint and marrow, soul and spirit, flesh and spirit as well, and guts off the junk out of our lives. It is a two-edged sword meant for holy surgery in our lives. Jesus knew Scripture, knew it was life-giving and healing and restorative. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says it's profitable. Profitable for reproof, correction, instruction, and knowing who God is. That you might be wise in God. Oh. Oh, yeah, that. So Jesus knew Scripture because it was key to His relationship with His Father. And it also helped Him understand when people didn't know how to relate to His Father because they weren't keeping the Scripture. How do you think Jesus knew the temple was a house of prayer? Oh, well, you know, because He prayed there. No, it says it in the Word. My house shall be a house of prayer. Zeal has consumed me for my Father's house, which shall be a house of prayer. That's an Old Testament verse Jesus quoted when He cleaned the temple. If He has to clean your temple and say, you shall be my house of prayer, He'll do it. And you shall say, I am to be God's house of prayer. I will be bathed in prayer. I will be a prayer warrior. Scripture says that. You would know that and want to do that if it was heavy on your heart. But, if you're not studying, learning, quoting, and memorizing it, it won't be there and your relationship with God will be very weak. But the third thing Jesus had, and this was a difficult lesson for me, was that He had a humble heart. In Philippians 2, we learn about His heart. It says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let the same, the mind of Christ, there it is. Let this mind be in you which was also in Jesus, who being in the form of God, it says, Let, by the way, let this mind, it means you have some responsibility in having the mind of Christ. You can stop it or you can let it happen. But the Holy Spirit's going to do the work if you'll let Him. You can stop the flow. Let this mind be in you, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery or taking from God to be equal with Him. But He made Himself of no reputation. He lost all His divinity and glory in heaven and took the form of a bond servant. We sometimes miss that, but now we understand that He was a servant Oh, I don't like that sometimes. And coming in the likeness of you and I, being found in appearance as a human, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even of the cross. 
The point of death, obedience. He humbly accepted God's way over his even if it would cost him his own life. That's what he's saying. Let me tell you something. Jesus was confident in his heavenly Father. But the truth is, pride is not the same as confidence. Some people say, I I have confidence in my heavenly Father, but they're really saying pride. I want to tell you how this works. And this is what made me uncomfortable this week. You see, in our lives, we tend to try to ease the tension in ourselves, And this is a process called homeostasis. Homeostasis simply means everything needs to be at peace. So if water is too high in, in, a, in a place, it wants to go back so it's level. Same process. If there's tension in a relationship, we try to resolve it so there's peace. That's just how nature is designed to be. If you have a question in your heart and, and you don't really feel at ease until the question is resolved. That's called homeostasis. You get back to peace, right? Well, I began learning about that. And um, on that same day that I began learning about that, an email was sent to my work. Apparently, God has a good sense of humor. <laughs> because I sure didn't when I heard about the email the next day. The email said, we don't know who this driver is, but we hope he's not an example for all the other bus drivers in McCracken County, because if he is, you need to get new drivers. They they spoke about some of my driving patterns that they witnessed, and and so I had to have a ride-along. I mean, someone from the office had to ride with me and tell them and observe how I drove. I don't know about you, but I don't like backseat drivers. I don't like people criticizing every single turn, move, stop, pause, every single action I make, but I had that for two and a half hours. And by the end of the time, I was angry. I know how to drive. Why are you telling me? This is how you do it. Sometimes you just got to break the law. And that's what I said. Sometimes you just got to go over the speed limit. Sometimes you got to roll a stop sign. Sometimes you got to do this. Sometimes you got to do that. It's justifiable. And I was mad because they're going, okay. 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 And I'm getting more mad because they're not saying, you're wrong. They're just saying, okay. Okay. Oh, you missed that stop sign. Did you see it? You didn't come to a full sec- three-second stop. You- Did you see that car coming? You- I'm going, i got kids to pay attention to. i got a route to get to. Why are you talking to me? By the end of that time, this person in my bus, I hated. I didn't want to see that person ever again. I was mad. Literally mad. And justifiably so in my mind. Because it was their fault that they were talking and telling me what I was doing wrong. And isn't that what we say to God? God, it's your fault. You're the one telling me what's doing wrong. God, it's your fault. You, you, you made me lose my job. You made this person die. God, it's your fault. Blaming God, blaming everything else, but not taking personal responsibility for my own behavior. And I said, I hope I never hear that voice in my ear ever again. I can't stand it. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to rethink this whole thing about driving a bus, and I'm not going to do anything. I came to church Wednesday night, and people asked me how I'm doing. I'm going... Well, I'm here. In my mind, what I meant to say is, I'm not there. So I'm justifying that I'm not there is a good thing. And then Thursday happened. 
Hold up this verse again. Justifying yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. Listen, God knows your heart. And Thursday, another email came through and two phone calls. And so I had another ride-along Friday. And I said, what are we doing? And the ride-along said, we don't think you can drive by the law. And this is serious. And I said, oh yeah? Oh yeah. I'll show you I can drive by the law and it's not going to work. I'll prove to you that your way doesn't work. I said, we're going to have to leave two minutes earlier and I'll show you it ain't going to work. I hit every stop sign like I was supposed to. I obeyed every single speed limit zone. I waited till the kids were seated. I opened the door and shut them. And then we went around and got to the school. And I looked at my watch and I looked up at her and I looked at my watch and we were right on time. And she said, it worked, didn't it? And I looked back and said, I don't know how that happened. She said, most drivers don't understand because they don't trust that we know how this thing works better than they do. Because they think they know because they're in such a hurry. And I said, well, my anxiety the whole time is going, speed up. And I kept telling myself, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Over and over, telling myself, God's got this. This is okay. This is what they want. Let's do it their way and show them they're wrong. And they showed me I was. I was upset that I was wrong. But I wasn't upset in a bad way. I was upset because it took me so long. Do you understand what I'm saying? When I got off that bus that day, it was a person I didn't want to ever hear from, right? And I, and I, and I looked at her and I said this. I said, I don't know how that happened. I'm, I'm stunned. I'm shocked. I don't even know what to say. And she said, most people want to tell me they hate me after I do a ride along. And I said, no. I want to thank you. Because you fed me humble pie. And I needed it. I don't understand how it works. I don't know what difference that did or how things happened that I got there quicker by going slower. It doesn't make sense in my brain. It doesn't logically process. Do you understand? Pride is not confidence. In Proverbs, it tells us about pride. I don't like this verse. It says pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's what I was headed towards. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. I was so humbled in that moment. Do you understand? God was trying to get me the attention all week and He had to physically, tangibly show me that I was walking in error. And I could either accept the correction or walk in denial. I was so moved and so humbled by being wrong that I had tears in my eyes. And when she got off the bus, I grabbed her neck, hugged her, and said, Thank you. And she said, I thought you were going to hate me and kill me. 
And I said, no, I really appreciate it. She said, I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to serve you to make you better. That's what Jesus is trying to do with us. Make us better people for His kingdom. He's not trying to destroy us, cut us down, chew us up and spit us out. He's trying to make us better people and we keep fighting against it thinking we know better. And God says to think you know better than Jesus is an abomination. This morning, I thought, wow, I'm going to talk about this and I'm not going to tell her. She texted me, sent me a picture, says, don't be anxious, God's got you, God's got this, let it all be in His hands. You're going to do great today. And and I thanked her for the text. I said, bless you, I really appreciate. I really appreciate what you did for me. I can't explain it yet, but thank you. You've made me a better person. And then I said, I'm telling the story, but I'm not using your name. And she said, thank you for letting me share and teach you. Do you understand what a servant leader does? Mm -hmm. They're humble enough to say, I want to help you, but they're not going to force you. They're going to keep showing you even though you think they're condemning and judging and criticizing. And we're justifiably saying that I don't want that. But God says when it's God, the one himself saying, come to me, know my word, know my truth, know me, know me. And we keep going, I don't have time. I'm too busy. And we are justifiably saying those things. And people are leaving the kingdom. Possibilities far behind. He said, any wonder the church is becoming ineffective? And why I say without this mindset of a servant leadership, we can't church up. Because we're still justifying when we're not. If you don't learn it from me, you're going to have to learn it yourself. Hopefully you won't get an email or something like that. But I want to tell you something. The whole attitude since that second ride-along has been, you're an awesome driver. Man, I'm so proud of you. You really can do this well. And you're so good with the kids. And wow, you're teachable. (laughs) I don't have to justify that. And when you come to God humbly... You ask Him to bring you through those places so you don't commit an abomination which God says, get away from me. I'm glad He didn't let me go that far. And I had to do some humble pie eating, but you know what they say? Hmm. Pride's not hard to swallow when you chew on it for a while. I don't have to justify the truth in love. And to do things the right way and God's way. I sure do have to justify doing it my way though, don't I? And so do you. And it doesn't work in God's eyes. Doesn't work in yours either. You end up going to bed miserable. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, we can either lie down in peace and joy. 
are we? We can walk the same paths we've always walked and wonder why nothing changes. And I know this morning, Heavenly Father, as we've heard this word, that it wasn't easy for me to receive, so I'm thinking it's not easy for anybody else to receive either. But if your Holy Spirit's on us today, right now, in this place, and we're willing to acknowledge your truth to us, you're not condemning us. You're trying to set us free from the things that enslaved us for so long. I pray right now, that in this place at this time, right now, that what you're doing in me, you'll do for others. And then we'll walk this journey together. Help us love as you love and serve as you have. Humbly, gratefully, learning to know you more. I pray this in your son's holy name, Lord. For your honor, Lord.